0: And we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Hello, Fascination. Welcome to the show. So I'm sure if you're living in the world now in 2022, you're aware of the things that are threatening our existence, be it climate change, sentient AI, or viruses running amok in a possible zombie apocalypse. This is going to cause you to become prepared if you're smart, much like the Doomsday Preppers. And in any Doomsday Preppers house, they have lots of shelf-stable foods and MREs. And this is the types of, of food and nutrients that can last for long periods of time and remain you know, healthy and non-poisonous and non-lethal, I guess, is is the key to that. How is that possible? How has food been able to be preserved for so long? Where did that technology come from? Well, it turns out the army is extraordinarily connected, not only to MREs, obviously, but to a lot of the food that we eat, a lot of processed food. And there's someone who's done an incredible amount of research on this. And in her book, Combat Ready Kitchen, she details all of this, all of the the, the innovations that led us to this point. And so I, I'm today I get to talk with the author who is just an expert in this field and I just want to jump right into this because there's a lot of interesting things here and I promise a conversation about the McRib so Anastasia thank you so much for being on the show today all right Anastasia let's see if I can get your name correct Anastasia Marx de la Solcedo no wait I, I put an extra yeah, law in, in, in there let me try there's it no <laughs> lot. let me try it <laughs> let me try it again all right I gotta, we got to start this interview right Anastasia Marx de Solcedo
1: um, I like I like the little extra accent, and that's kind of cute, so you I'm like, just going to you good? go with
0: that. Is that good? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So okay. do Well, so this is going to be a very interesting conversation because this the book you've written is extraordinarily unique. And, you know, in the world that we live in, especially with food, food being so important and really being, you know, on the tip of everyone's tongue, if I can uh, use a pun, uh, I think what you've done here is remarkable because – I think we're going to go in a lot of directions here, but I think the thesis statement that I'd like to accomplish here is we're going to talk about how modern food can trace its roots back to military technology. And that military technology comes from battlefield food, food that was designed to be preserved on the battlefield. And this includes most staples that we eat, which is kind of alarming, uh, but also extraordinarily impressive that the army can have such an influence on basically what ninety six percent of what we eat. I mean, that must have been kind of shocking for you.
1: Well, I think ninety six might be a little bit beyond what I estimated. I what I What'd estimated you estimate? was fifty percent of the <laughs> items, but I did say at least. So wait, so that I'm, I'm going to give you it could be it could be ninety six because I did say at least fifty percent because that right. could be all the way up to ninety six. Sure, um, but. But I, I felt a safe saying fifty. Um, yeah. Well, we work—we only
0: work in hyperboles on this show, so okay. Uh, well, that's good. Let's go yeah, hyperbole yeah, yeah. away. Uh, so, fi- but fifty percent—that's that's pretty big. And in one one chapter of your book, you actually kind of walk through uh, a supermarket run. You take a cart and you, you know, basically put things in your cart that are all things that the military had an influence on, and it's quite a bit you know uh, it's, it's quite a bit now I have to say this when, when there's a quote I want to come in on here a quote from your book mm-hmm. okay. and you say that the impact of the military on America's life is so profound that it is unimaginable and that if we were to try to erase it we might end up erasing modern existence itself now I tell you I love that quote but as I mentioned about hyperbole, it seems like you work in them too. That seems a little dramatic because that's similar to what Doc Brown said to Marty McFly about traveling back in time and disrupting the space-time continuum. Is that a little alarmist, even a little bit?
1: I actually do not think so. Um really? and, the, and I'll tell you what my reasoning is. I looked at one very small corner of military influence, and what I tried to do was to... Uh, trace the connection between uh, the food science that goes into combat ra- uh, creating and and uh, sort of tweaking combat rations and mm-hmm. how that is disseminated to the consumer food industry and we can talk about you know why that happens and how that happens mm-hmm. uh, later on but going to the point uh, I the the um the laboratory that does that is the combat feeding directorate at the <laughs> <Great name. laughs> lab at the, at the natick um soldier systems center which is a uh, federal laboratory um DOG, where they are, are um do research on anything to do with the individual soldier and so they have ooh I think probably at least a cup um say, a dozen, dozen and a half different program areas. Mm -hmm. Um, In the process that I ended up uh, researching and detailing um, of of technology transfers from combat rations to the consumer food industry, that same process is going on, and for reasons we can discuss later, in every single area of military research. Hmm. So, this um, federal laboratory is has let's say again 18 let's say 12 to 18 different program areas. there are 80 laboratories around the country so wow. you have to think about that and yeah. they are and then you have to think about all the different things that um, the military is going to do research on and then mm-hmm. then you'll understand my comment so um, it's going to do uh, research on you know sort of material uh, uh, you know, engineering, mm-hmm. so so that they can have uh, better surfaces for uh, conveying military vehicles. It's going to do um, research on fabrics because you create, uh, you know, you have your combat uniform. It's going to be doing research on things like you know tents, shoes, uh, chemistry. Um, we all know the telecommunications um, examples of you know GPS and the internet, and I mean so it the thing that we have not looked in medicine is a huge area where there's right. been a, a military influence including right. uh, if we go back you know where did surgery come from surgery came uh, really appeared after uh, the firearms started to be used regularly in, in, in war and people needed to repair some really bad injuries. So um, that comment, I do not think is exaggerated. I think that if we looked, I, I could not inventory all the different um, subject areas in which there is a military influence, but it is very, very broad. And it's been consistent, um, you know, really since World War II.
0: Well, and, you know, and we can't rule out that they are working on time travel. So it's very possible that they could be altering the space-time continuum. And if that's the case, then there is nothing alarmist about what you're saying at all. Uh, but that it is crazy to think that the tentacles are everywhere. But in a lot of ways, you know, I mean, what is it? 75% of our budget goes to, to military spending. And, you know, that, that does trickle down. Any technology that we're going to develop as a country is going to trickle down to the consumer market and then to the people at some point uh which is interesting but before we get into that you take a little bit of a journey in this book uh which is called combat ready kitchen and you start out by saying how you're an average an avid cook Not i almost said average definitely not an average cook but an <laughs> avid cook and that your first your first meal really became your signature dish and this was spiced eggs uh, this was scrambled eggs with every spice in it. I believe you made this <laughs> when you were, you know, six or seven years old. Now, what was your patented blend? Can I ask you that? I mean, can you share it or is it kind of Absolutely. You, like the colonel's, the not like the colonel's recipe? Okay. What what was in it?
1: I'm so glad you brought that up. No one has ever asked me about it spiced eggs before what's your and, so, uh, first of all i have to say that like many kids i hated any runny eggs so they had to be really really dry <laughs> yeah. yeah um and my technique was literally i don't know if my my mother was a little bit um not ocd but very organized i think she might have organized <laughs> the spice shelf a sort of alphabetically uh, and i just yeah. would run through the alphabet sure it was just sure. everything i didn't put in you know the sweet things but anything that was like an herbal savory flavor i just threw that in
0: yeah. So anise was that in there or anise or whatever that is was that a little bit of that in there a little bit of uh Well that might have been amaretto? that might have That's been a dr- little exotic
1: foods, for my mother's 1970s kitchen. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right, fair, fair enough. But it, so everything it, but it was yeah, a premium blend of 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 the entire cabinet. I like that. You know, when I, my grandmother, I used to make Sunday she used to make Sundays for me with fudge, I mean she went the whole thing, fudge, nuts, whipped oh, cream, wow. cherries, yeah. And so what I would do is I would take the bowl and I would mix it up. And then i would eat it and i was like oh these flavors taste so good all mixed in together thinking i was like some chef you know really it was just convergent evolution because i was making a milkshake is all that was right so this is just you know it's just convergent technology which we'll get into when we talk about the energy bar uh but now you know and so begin the book you're really into cooking you go to co-ops farmers markets you know to go to the farms And then, you know, slowly, I think, you know, kids are always really the root of all evil. I think we can all agree on that. So once you have kids, then you kind of start buying some of these processed foods and you make the shift into, um, I think that that's kind of how your journey on this started, right? Or at least that's how it is in the book. You started out as, as a, you know, really concentrating on the items, what's going into every meal. And then slowly as the kids wanted different stuff and things became easier and you started working on different things, then the process began. Is that kind of what happens? Kind of what happened. And okay. I
1: think you're right. And I, I liked it. Um, I'm glad you pointed out my, my origins as sort of like one of these kind of foodie people who believe mm-hmm. it was really important to make everything from scratch and mm-hmm. organic and blah, 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 blah. Um, and I'm definitely not that now. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's been a journey, interesting journey for me. And I think yeah, you're right definitely. that the kids had a, had a lot of influence. Also, my husband, mm-hmm. um, because My husband uh, comes from uh, a communist country, did not Mm -hmm. have a lot of access to foods Mm -hmm. uh, when he grew up. So he for him, uh, the American supermarket was just this incredible cornucopia and he would go and he loved, um, you know, packaged and preserved foods because he did not have those growing up right so we we have this this kind of tension which we still do which we do double shoppings i go get the (laughs) cooking food then he immediately runs out and goes and gets all the snack foods and the processed foods and the frozen foods sure and so we had that dynamic when um our kids were small and he you know knew how to he was a crowd pleaser sure and so there were a lot of snacks that would make their way into the those carts and eventually you know i started to become the unfavored parent in terms of my shopping (laughs) and it was probably like a bid for love and attention that i i did sort of finally relent and and get these items myself so energy bars and the mac and cheese and and the little goldfish crackers
0: I mean, that's really how all parenting goes down. Everyone gets soft. You know, I mean, a couple generations ago, you know, things people were a little stiffer. They used, you know, sticks on people for for punishment. And now we're buying them, you know, macaroni and cheese. Uh, yeah, I think this is what's wrong with this country, if you really want my opinion. Uh, I'm just kidding. But we, what wait, we, wait
1: you think I should have, have continued to enforce the healthy meals?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Without question, because I think that there is something uh, I think there's something important here because here's what. Go, so going into this book what really mm-hmm. what I loved about this book was i I'm kind of weirdly obsessed with with nature and how the natural order of things it's important to follow meaning that like for so for example I'm really into turmeric as a supplement and it has a lot of anti-inflammatory um, properties what science has done is they've found the quote-unquote anti-inflammatory part of that the curcumids and they've mm-hmm. they've they've Concentrated them, So if you go you know, into the store, that, you can buy just those things. But what they're failing to see is that the entire root, because it's really a root, uh, the entire piece of biology works in unison. All of the things together, the enzymes actually activate their curcumids. And so that's not, that's not just the anti-inflammatory part. It all works together. And nature's figured that out, right? But humans mm-hmm. step in. And then we think to ourselves, oh, well, uh, we can do we can make things better. You know, we can do things better than the natural order. And I think that that's where everyone goes wrong. And to me, that was like the sub narrative of your book is how the military wanted to step in and make things better in their minds by giving it a better shelf life. uh, Let's see, uh, portable shelf life, easy to prepare, you know, tasting good. Americans make really good tasting food, but with that technology comes a lot of downsides, which are, you know, I, I don't think the food we eat now is better. Right. And so my point is, I think that that natural you giving a lot of natural foods to your kids, I think that is the way it should be. Um, and, and I think that th- that kids are better for it. Now, I say this with extreme authority, Anastasia. Having no kids of my own, so <laughs> so it's very easy for me to st- yeah. stand on my pedestal here. I am aware, uh, you know, that I have absolutely no experience in this at all, but that will not stop me from speaking with extreme authority.
1: Well, it, it never does. It never does. Right. We all do this. Exactly. Um, so I, have a, I actually did have a small correction, which is okay. the better piece. Okay. Okay. Um, It is the military did not, is not, never tried to make food better. There was a very specific uh, end, and really this all began. um, The really the first time the military got involved in in food science was way back during the Napoleonic age when um, there had been issues with uh, hunger and starvation during of the French revolution. Right. And so there was this idea that we need to figure out some, some new way to preserve food so that, mm-hmm. so that we can provide it to soldiers. Um, and so that, that preservation aspect is probably, and the safety aspect are the, probably the two strongest, right. uh, uh, you know, endpoints for the military in being involved in food science. And then, you know, the others are, of course, you know, they want to, it should be rugged. Mm-hmm. and affordable mm-hmm. palatable and right and yes nutritious so so i i don't, I don't want to say better because it it is the, it is better for military purposes
0: okay i think that's a great distinction and and i like that you mentioned the napoleonic era because i didn't want to get too caught up in the history of this because basically the military is moving soldiers around and they need food to go with it and it used to be that they would just rape and pillage the town and just steal whatever they needed, and then they wanted to come up with a better system. Uh, because I think I want to talk about some of the technology, because that's where my fascination is. But speaking of technology here, you bring up a great point, because during the, the Napoleonic era, that's where we get uh, the tin can later, uh, you know, the uh, aluminum can. Oh, wait, I guess, hold on, I may be getting that mixed up. No, no, but, you're right, you're right.
1: right? You're, you're, the evolution is correct, if and okay. then... Aluminum.
0: Okay, mm-hmm. um, and first glass,
1: I should say though. Glass was the oh, right. material, right? Because
0: yeah, that- it was like soup and glass, right? It was the. That was Alpert was making, yeah, basically well, putting soup in glass. Yeah, right? and,
1: and so what happened was that glass obvi- has some obvious downsides for uh, traveling, and mm-hmm. um, so eventually they began to to, to create these humongous cans mm. um, for, and I think I believe it's actually for the the uh, the the Navy was right. for the first uh, to use them, and then they, they evolved into these sort of smaller bits, but yeah.
0: Well, that's a great tea up here because what I wanted to mention with the tin can is there's this uh, great TV show called The Terror, uh, which is about this naval ship. Uh, it's a fleet that gets caught in the Arctic. that they Basically, the, the water freezes around them, and they have a bunch of tin cans, but one of the problems is that the tin goes bad and a bunch of lead leaks into the food. And so this was, again, as you mentioned, on a, basically during the Napoleonic era, right after, uh, this is you know on a Navy vessel, and there were problems with the canning because we didn't have it quite down. Um, the idea of heating it was right in, rest- but not always done perfectly, because you know, Louis Pasteur hadn't come around. As you mentioned, he kind of perfected the pasteurization process and killing microbes. But it is an interesting beginning, and that is really where Uh, the militaries across the world are looking for ways to transport, safely transport food for their soldiers, right? That's, that is really the kind of the Genesis point for this, right?
1: It was safe to be able to have a food that could last for a long time without refrigeration. That's really, I mean, and be safe. Yeah. Okay. So so, in the transport and yeah, that also, that is, and you know, be able to carry it with them um, into battle, into the field, you know, on any kind of an expedition. Yes.
0: Well, and it's funny because you know you you, the thing that you kind of mentioned so so World War Two I think you say in the book is the Big Bang for, mm-hmm. uh, for for the military food, and this is kind of interesting because you know the thing that I I didn't really think about until I was reading your book is just how how much food has to be shipped into military bases. So even if you think of you know you know our recent uh, foray into Afghanistan. Yeah, these mm-hmm. are you know, these are these are contested roads. These these this is not you know, this is not an easy thing to do. You no. have to get a lot of food there. It's very dangerous. And, you know, how do you kind of counter I mean this these are all issues that the military has to deal with. And so our you know, MREs can be flown in and dropped from a you know, from a ship or or from a from an airplane or whatever. So there are benefits to that. Uh but I thought that was really interesting that you bring it up in your book.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the you you're you described that whole evolution um you know starting you know, originally of course people would forage um and although combat rations are quite um ancient and really right. be, appeared with the first civilizations because we've are not um peaceable unfortunately <laughs> and so <No. laughs> um but they weren't they, they were not very uh you know, they were pretty basic. There were little cakes that they could be carried in and so forth. Later on, there was uh, the Egyptians added in things, dried fish, which was great because of the protein source um, and and rations really started this kind of this sort of dried foods that people could take with them mm-hmm. for a, uh, a couple of millennia. And then later right. on with modern armies, we were like, OK, we want to be able to create Inside um, from the foraging and you know grabbing everybody's chickens and you know right. going into their houses and grab, we'd like to be able to have something we can bring with us. Sure. Um, and as you mentioned, it is very hard to um, get things in and out. So again, you have this uh, sort of this 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 weight that's pushing you more toward creating these imperishable items mm. that can be last forever. And so that becomes a really, again, it's just so, so important for for a combat ration.
0: Well, now let's, so let's see where we are. Let's talk a little bit about where we are and then how some of these staples kind of came to be because you actually got to visit uh, the, the, the Natick soldier facility and the, what is it? The food directive? Is that <laughs> the, 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 the combat, combat food, food directive? directive. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love that name. Uh, that's almost as good as the, um, what is it? The worshipful union of butchers, which which is also a great name for an organization. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yes. That's one of my favorites. So you, so it's not far so you're in boston correct yes i went to school in boston so you and i are probably right down the street from each other uh and we were both right down the street from this soldier from the from the natick research facility now they let you in there and you detail this Mm -hmm. in your book that must have been kind of exciting um but tell me a little bit about your experience there what were you expecting and then what was kind of what was kind of delivered
1: well i will say um on the I went uh, expecting. I was looking a little more for color because mm-hmm. I had I had a feeling I wasn't going to, you know, they weren't going to be revealing their their latest <laughs> project. Wasn't like Willy Walker something. right? Yeah, but a lot of the stuff I, you know, um, which I got, yeah. and they were they. Um, it was very interesting, um, you know, in terms of of actually some of the funnest part was their. Uh, their testing laboratory where they're constantly testing the combat rations and you get to taste them. And they have this whole system, which was developed by the military in terms of how to rate them. Um, You know, they had, uh, these large kitchens where they're kind of concocting little variations on you know the latest menu item. They have a packaging lab. I think I described that, and that mm. that was actually really fun um, because they're they're trying to figure out how to subject these uh, rations to sort of the conditions that they might find in the mm-hmm. field, including things like um, having a special machine that simulates like. You know, three hundred miles of bumpy road right, yeah. and dropping. Literally, they had like a th- a device which just drops
0: the <laughs> rations over yeah. and over again, and yeah.
1: they had special heat chambers. So, um, the, and and that was all very interesting. Um, it was also fun to uh, go on a military base. I had to go through, of course, and, you know, a, a special entryway, and I had my car searched, and I get searched, and you have to have be vetted beforehand. Um, so, but I didn't really expect and to find out too much on what they were doing in terms of their current, um, food science mm. research. And on that I was able to, I, I, went, I went back to documents and that's always sort of my go-tos go find the really boring documents right. and go through them, you know, um, sort of, and find that. So, so what I found is that I could piece together what they were doing, um, what the research agenda was, Uh, by looking at the military budgets from year to year oh wow, and seeing like little changes in the (laughs) set, which I could, and interestingly enough, they still, uh, I recently was going to, um, (laughs) wanted to update it. And some I, I know I did a radio Uh. show and I said, Hey, I'm going to be talking to, with the, it was the Australian, um, equivalent of the of the combat feeding directorate, and they were like, I said, you want to tell me what your your latest things, and they were like, no. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, so so yeah, I went and reconstructed that from by looking at military the, the military budgets.
0: Well, I, it's funny because when you say you know you're gonna go through documents, even if it's research documents, there's some interesting stuff. I've read a lot of you know a lot of those medical papers, which you know can be a little boring, but then you take it even one step further uh, into the snorefest and <laughs> in Snortown. And then it's accounting <laughs> now we're gonna look at oh, <laughs> now we're gonna look yeah. at you know accounting and it's like, oh my god that, I, I don't know how you did that that's uh, that's impressive i I have to admit um, what's also impressive is that while you were there, uh, you went with menu eighteen, which is a beef patty uh, and you describe mm-hmm. it so well because it's <laughs> this is a beef patty that's sitting at room temperature for two years. It's heated in a transparent bag, which is the, the actually the, the heater that they have is is kind of cool. It's a chemical reaction with magnesium salt, water, uh, you know, and and it basically you know will heat up. You put water in the bag mm-hmm. and it, it heats something up. And if you look at the instructions, it's yeah. actually very funny because it says, it has it at an angle and it's got like what looks like a rock in the diagram and it says balance right. on something. And it literally says balance on something, which is, I usually expect the military to be a more exact than that, a little more articulate. But yeah.
1: I know. Put it I on know, something. That's
0: a fun line <laughs> But uh, But I love that. But so how was it when you when you ate it? Did it taste like a hamburger?
1: Um, it, Like I think I said, it, it, it was... Palatable if you were hungry. I think that's about all I'd say. Um, you know, there, there are items that, but, so we should talk a little bit about when the combat rations okay. are used because they're not typically, they're not something that you would be eating day in, okay. day out. Um, usually you're going to have um, a large, be associated with a, a large base where they're going to set up an actual kitchen, have actual cooks. Mm. Um, they even sometimes have uh, fast food. So yeah, of, that was crazy. Um, stands on, on you the said base. that, I didn't know that. Yeah. So, um, these, the, the combat rations are used when you're out, you know, in the field, they would, uh, or in a forward, uh, operating base, which can be, um, sort of, you're, you know, out there for a limited period of time. It could be, three, you know, few days, or it could be uh, several weeks, you're not supposed to be eating these for months on end. Um, so that, you know, that makes a difference. So they, so you're in this p- extreme situation and, you know, you're trying to, to get as many calories. One of the interesting things that happens with, um, it's unlike... Here at home, where we like, you know, we have we have to wash ourselves so we don't overeat. Right. <laughs> um, when you're in these kind of situations, it's very stressful, mm. and it's actually hard. It's that that causes you to lose your appetite. Mm. So one of the issues becomes something that they call battlefield anorexia, oh, wow. um, which is that soldiers just they they don't feel hungry because they're dealing in constant stress. So it's they have to try and get them to eat. Um, so one of the ways around that, of course, was moving. Sort of away from more traditional meal type uh, foods to a more of a snacky, snackier approach,
0: um, which you talk about in the book. Which is which I didn't know was a problem. Because, you know, it's a good point to talk about the rations first, which is kind of like a meal in a bag. I guess is, a, is the best way to explain it, right? Yeah. And so it's it's.
1: I uh, want. Well, I have. Done do you? That. Let's. If you like. It oh, let's. What. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's <laughs> yeah. see what you got here. This one's a pretty open one. Um, let's see which menu. Oh, this is the, this is a good one. Um, let's see it's pork. Sausage oh, can patty. You, can you hold flavored? up for those
0: watching us uh, on YouTube? Uh, look at that. Now I will tell you. I'm going to tell you a story about MREs, but I have a lot that are just like that that I pulled out of a dumpster in the early 2000s. So
1: okay. <laughs> well, the question is, will, would you eat it on the
0: table? <laughs> well, I don't have one with me, luckily, <laughs> but I've never opened one, and this is a perfect opportunity to see what's in those things.
1: Yeah. Would you? So would you like to see what's in it? Um, Definitely. Absolutely. What? Yeah. yeah okay. Let's see what you got. So um, here we have the actual pork sausage patty <laughs> in this little right. box and inside um you're gonna have your flameless ration heater yeah, that's cool which would heat that up i might have taken that out and this is so this um this little package is called a retort
0: wow pouch. so i want to just explain how this for people who can't see this this is a vacuum sealed bag around the beef patty which is
1: Right. There's a little patty in here. You can kind of see yeah. the shape. I feel like I, I, I have some scissors I could open up, but then I might be. I might feel, because I'm, I'm one of those people who can't resist a yeah. dare, I might feel that I have. Oh my idea. God. Though, I can't and, resist daring you. I think this one I was back <laughs> in 2016. Oh, okay. So that's not so bad. Which is technically it should, I would trust it still. Yeah, but, um, yeah, yeah.
0: I don't want to make you sick.
1: I actually know what this is—just a tear thing.
0: Uh, if you look, if you want to do it, you, you want me? Yeah, to yeah, it? yeah. Sure. Let's let's <laughs> let's see this live. Yeah. Oh my! And it's easy to tear. Okay. I'm no, watching I, you tear it open. I'm
1: hoping to squirt all over my. Yeah, be careful. My
0: office. Oh yeah, be careful. I think I
1: might. I might have to get my. Skirt. I I do like
0: the brute force <laughs> approach because there's no one in the military is going to be bringing scissors with them. Maybe a combat know, knife, but, but. Uh,
1: but I don't. Do I want to be getting pork? Do sausage? you want the? Ex- Sauce all over my screen.
0: I think you should be I opening it with so. your teeth if you really want to do it like the military. Uh, yeah, do you want I the know, experience, I mean, I Anastasia? Do you want the West. real experience right, or not?
1: Here we are. Ooh. Let's see.
0: Oh, you're off. Ooh. You're off screen here. Let's Ooh. see. I'm, I'm at the edge of my seat here.
1: Sorry.
0: <laughs> okay, oh, here.
1: Um, this is looking very. Hold on, on. Reminding me a lot. Oh, of oh, bring
0: it, bring it over, bring it over. Oh my goodness, that looks like
1: dog food. Uh, to the right, to the right. Can no, no, there that? we go.
0: Oh wow, yeah. Oh, that's something.
1: I. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> Wait,
0: can you bring it back in closer to your face just so I can see it on camera? <laughs> you know what? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, that's okay. interesting.
1: Oh, ho! You know, this is an older MRI. <laughs> this is not smelling good, though. It's not, <laughs> not that it smells bad, like yeah. it's spoiled. It's just starting to smell very chemically. Oh, that's and interesting. Can you explain that? Um, yeah, explain that
0: smell to me because I'm curious what the actual, what it yeah. smells like.
1: Yeah, actually a really interesting thing. It brings it up, um, which is that so so to make something last this long. So um, by law, a combat Russian needs to be able to last for three years at 80, at eighty degrees
0: Fahrenheit, right? Eighty, yeah, eighty. I was going to say because it has to. Eighty degrees is pretty warm for something to exist. Yeah.
1: So, um, to do that, you have to do what is uh, create what is called in food science terms a shelf life system. Right. Um, which generally involves uh, both. Uh, chemicals and uh, stabilizers sure. so that things don't deteriorate. Because yeah. food is a really interesting substance. It's constantly, <laughs> um, the molecules in food are constantly moving, right. even if you have it frozen so Well, frozen solids hard, but um, so it changes over time. Yeah. And so in order to get something to last that long, you have to add a lot of chemicals. And now over this, again, I think is probably six years old, those chemicals are starting to predominate on the nose of the of the pork patty. <laughs>
0: on the nose. So what, so what does it smell like? Because you actually are uh, a remarkable it, food critic in the book. Yeah, I mean, the okay. way you describe things is, is very impressive.
1: I can smell a small – I can smell the pork uh, pork undernote, but there's like <laughs> those sort of like – it almost smells um, – sort of like an, an epoxy smell yeah yeah that i wouldn't I, it's it would be hard for me to if i held my nose i might be able to take a bite but i'm not going to offer that
0: so we are not so basically you're telling me that we're not going to get your your assessment of the mouth feel of that beef patty is we're not no, no? Not, okay.
1: pork patty no. Pork patty so, sorry, okay sorry. moving along right. so the reti- and we didn't get into the retort pouch which is also really important technology yeah, yeah. Uh, so that this is also packed in a retort pouch and this is just a little This is a chocolate chip cookie. Oh wow! I could that would probably be safer to eat, but I'm I'm not gonna offer that. Okay. Um, and so the retort pouch is actually a replacement for the can.
0: Oh, interesting. Um, This
1: little plastic pouch was developed by uh, the Natick Center in the 1960s, Uh and it is um, a replacement for the can. So you can you can essentially can stuff inside, and it's and um, while it wasn't uh, embraced. Uh, that quickly by american food manufacturers it did it was uh used in asia uh particularly for fish and other items and it's now starting to work its way into our own um supermarket so you may have seen some of like a tuna in a can yeah um and and sorry in a retort pouch and so forth. so yeah
0: well, I want to pause you for a second because my grandma loves, uh, sometimes I order her food and she loves eating tuna in one of those bags and salmon in those bags. So, I often, oh, okay. so, so it's just like that. And you make a good point in the book that packaging, you don't think about it, but packaging is vital to storage. You, know, you liken it to the importance of our skin, uh, temp- temperature regulation, protection from invaders, protection from the environment, and a physical barrier. So that technology, which was the can originally and now is plastic, while awful for our oceans and environment is incredibly well suited for protecting food for long periods of time.
1: Absolutely. And I I have actually, that metaphor is perfect because those are really the functions of the packaging. Um, You need to, it's a barrier, protects it from invaders, keeps out, um, you know, it it keeps it from changing and so forth. so yeah
0: Yeah. it doesn't keep humans out because you open that pork patty very easily but it'll keep everything else out for sure all right so what else we got what else we got in your old bag of goodies all
1: right so i have granola granola is you know uh, this is kind of a traditional item this is just in a regular plastic bag um oh and here's the here's the flameless ration heater
0: oh wow uh so that is so hold if you don't move it just in front of your face so i can get full screen on it yeah uh so that is it's much bigger than i thought. So this is a large plastic container. It's got instructions on it. It's roughly, it looks like it's almost a foot long, maybe uh, mm-hmm. half a foot wide. Um, and so you just fill that with water and is it so it operates like a... You don't
1: fill it with water. You fill it to a certain... Because uh, remember, this is a chemical reaction.
0: Right, right. An
1: exothermic reaction which creates heat. Oh, uh, do not and overfill. So it to,
0: in fact, it says <laughs> do not overfill
1: right here. And move it. Hey, so, can you
0: move it closer just so I can see the put it on something where it says, yeah, rock or something right there in the center of the screen <laughs> A rock yeah. or something i um, love that so
1: so yeah and um this is very handy
0: yeah those are great uh, and
1: you and then let's see what else we have in here we've got oh we have okay we have a powdered beverage
0: oh that is interesting so that looks like a gigantic kool-aid packet uh if a kool-aid yeah. packet was for you know the jolly green giant or something like that
1: it, it, it's essentially that And this would be probably a dehydrated. Well, may not be powdered, but dehydration and um, was one of the military technologies that came out of World War II. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sorry, um, freeze dehydration. And then here you have crackers. This is this is sort of an ancient uh, combat ration, which is the cracker.
0: Wow. Yeah, that is interesting because it. uh, I mean, that replaced the hardtack, but. But staling bread, removing all the moisture from a flour-based product is goes back, you know, all the way, uh, you know, in ancient times, basically, right? I mean, yes, just overcooking yes. bread is all the crack it really is.
1: Yeah, so the hard, t- hard tax. Tacks- Um, has been around since uh, Roman times and these, these very hard crackers were used up into the early 20th century and they're still used as a supplement. They do have also a bread item. Um, And then, Oh, Oh, I, this is actually a different technology. Um. So
0: how would I describe <laughs> this? So this is a sh- like a, pla- a clear plastic shrink wrap. You mind holding it up just for uh, one more second? Yep. Uh, so it's got three what appear to be sausage patties. They've got like black and white <clears throat> speckles in them. Uh, I'm going to take... I- I- I'll be honest. I have absolutely no... They look like pieces of sausage cut into... Right like slits but you're gonna
1: laugh at me because i think i stuffed i went to an event Uh where the military was there too showing some of their very latest uh drying this may be a microwave assisted dehydration process okay and they have these reverse osmosis things that are they've been experimenting with like these new drying technologies and i think that these little sausage links are from that okay um they weren't actually part of the mre so i that i was just pulling things out of my bag no that
0: is great and for so for people listening what's very different about this one is that this is a transparent container where all the other ones that you've shown me are opaque brown yeah. with black writing on them
1: and that oh, that's a, that's actually a really good point because one of the things that these so so the the issue becomes with food is the amount if you have a really dry food mm-hmm. it doesn't need as serious packaging I can like retort oh I see pouch right packaging because no uh, microbes can basically grow in that food okay for there to be any kind of uh, contamin- microbial c- contamination, you need to have some amount of moisture so they can reproduce because mm-hmm. they're living organisms. Right, right. So what, the reason that the uh, the military has been experimenting with these new drying technologies because they can then start to create these sort of uh, foods that aren't quite as as dried as be- freeze dried because that was just really hard for people to eat out of the package. Right but um, sort of in between that are not in danger of that kind of contamination. And that will mean they don't have to put it in this serious packaging, which is a cost.
0: I see. Okay. And
1: it's also um, very hard to deal with it on the waste perspective because it has a combination of foil and plastic.
0: Right. Right, right, right,
1: right. Okay. Oh, look what I got. What is that? It's a shelf-stable pizza.
0: <laughs> <laughs> now, this what's interesting about this is it is a completely brown container sealed. Uh, brown paper yeah. bag, I should say. Uh, brown plastic bag concealed. But this one doesn't have writing on it. It has what looks like a label, like a a, a mailing label on the front that says pepperoni pizza on it.
1: Now I I'm guessing that this may also have come from that uh, encounter that I had because um, I, I don't I know they have a shelf stable pizza and it's been that has been one of the most difficult items right. produced because um, a pizza if you think about it has these different layers which have different moisture levels right yeah yeah and so they migrate from layer to layer and so it, the, it's just been a real technical <laughs> challenge to try and get it. Basically, keep it from getting soggy and disgusting.
0: Right. I love the, the I love the terminology that moisture migrates. It's just such an interesting way to think about it, right? I mean, but it's true because you have a hard cracker, yeah. you've got wet sauce, and then you've got cheese, which is kind of in the middle. You want it to be moist but not too dry, and then you've got the pepperoni. Uh, and you again, you like you said, you don't want it to be. You know, you don't want the s- sauce to make the the crust soggy and. You know, to be tru- uh, to be truthful, I have no idea how they pulled that off, um, and I'm not sure that I want to know. But I'd like for you to tell me
1: well, um actually, that is this is something a whole category of foods that comes from military research, which is something called the intermediate moisture food mm-hmm. and it is what makes possible to have um sort of like the, you know those uh, like those what are they called bugles or you have you like like a filled um, kind of cracker with the cheese and while you while it seems like those two things have a really different moisture content they do not so what you do. Yeah. So there's, so um, all this kind of goes back to something called uh, water activity <laughs> and what water activity. So Another you have word. something like, right. Okay. More, more fun terms for you. Yeah. Um, so when you think of like a, a, a typical item, you would describe it as like being moist or not moist. Right. So that the water activity is, has to do with what um, molecules in the food are not actually bound to other molecules in the food and so it's so there'll be some water that's free
0: Mm -hmm. okay Okay. so
1: what water activity does is it binds up some of those molecules to other things so keeping them within the food and reducing the amount of free water (laughs) okay that, you should be you should be jumping on that term by the way free water. If I love
0: free water. That's great. The world should be okay. jumping on that. Yeah,
1: <laughs> um, yeah. So anyway, if you get the the water activity, which is describing this thing, down to in to a certain z- range, then you can keep uh, you can pair things with the same level of water activity because they won't migrate okay. from layer to layer. Okay. And so those weird little bugly things with the cheese and the and the cracker will have the same, the cracker and the cheese both have the same water activity and that's how that
0: works I will tell you I wish it's not because it's not bugles because my grandma used to buy bugles for me and those oh. those actually look like little cones like hollow cones that I used to put on my fingers yeah, yeah, yeah. but okay. what you're talking about I, and I wish I could pull it out but I don't know they're like um, they're like little logs like pretzel logs with the cheese yeah, in the middle yeah. I know exactly what they yeah, are Yeah,
1: I know me too um, okay but
0: yeah but that's interesting to think about um, but you can start pairing these things with similar water levels I thought that was that was extraordinarily interesting and the, so on on that which which i want to make sure we talk about the energy bar because i thought this was this was this is great for so many different reasons but not the least of which is that an apricot bar uh, which i believe was an intermediary food was on the Mm -hmm. space station that was one of the first foods that was Mm -hmm. brought up there i think uh, if i remember correctly
1: that is correct. Yeah. Um, do you want me to go into the the, the long version, the short version of the history of the energy bar?
0: I would love to talk. I'd love to give an intermediate version that includes okay. uh, the... The, just a, the brief connection with Hershey because I like that first it was chocolate and then they made a chocolate bar that no one wanted to eat. And then <laughs> That's
1: okay. the, the, the very, okay. So I'll try and do a quick version here. Oh, um, let me give you a starting so, point.
0: So there's one thing I do want you to mention. And that is yeah. that the history of the energy bar starts with chocolate. And I want to make sure we mention that Hershey, Milton S. Hershey saw chocolate being used in the 1893 Chicago world's fair, which is a narrative string Throughout all of my shows, this is probably the tenth time oh, that I've no, mentioned. I don't
1: know about that. Yeah, oh, that. So, in
0: the Chicago World's Fair, they they did almost everything there, including the beginning of chocolate, which in some ways is very important to the to the genesis of the energy wow. bar. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that.
1: I'm dying to know if there's a military connection because the military was involved Hmm. in slightly in the same time period i think a little tiny bit before um so the story actually goes back to um uh originally soldiers were motivated um, during sort of long marches and during heavy labor with yay alcohol (laughs) um so they got beer and whiskey sure (laughs) um and so but uh i think in sort of the late part of the uh, 19th century, the German army said, you know, um, we're going to stop doing that. And they had i just discovered chocolate, which is really made possible, of course, by a colonialism um, with, you know, sugar and chocolate. And they began to give their soldiers these bars for quick energy uh, in the field. And so the U.S. army also wanted to do that, but then quickly had this issue with um, the fact that, of course, chocolate tastes really good, mm-hmm. and so people did not keep these for emergency rations. Right. Um, so, so they, so they then began to experiment to try and make it unpalatable, <laughs> um, and they kind of went I, with, I guess apparently in the in the in the, ra- in the other direction a little bit too far, um, and eventually kind of shelved that until World War Two, and in World War Two uh, they realized that, again they needed an a, you know an emergency food item. And uh, one of sort of the predecessor to the, the uh, native labs, um, which was at that time a very, very small office, um, began to experiment with adding, um, you know, oat flour and vanilla and I think some egg uh, some egg protein to chocolate bars and came up with a recipe and then asked Hershey's to produce these Deliberately unpalatable chocolate <laughs> bars, which are called the D ration right. and went to, um, you know, were distributed throughout World War Two and then continued to be used really up until this century. Um, so that was the beginning. <laughs> right. And then after that, uh-huh. if you have time for this story, yeah. and after that, they decided to try and uh, come up with another and other emergency rations using freeze drying. Mm-hmm. Um, which, uh, as you know, removes all, almost all of the moisture. Right. They, these are also not very palatable. Um, and so after sort of these two failed attempts um, during the mid-1960s, they were doing the research on this water activity idea, which, by the way, was done at MIT back when MIT embraced food technology and food science and didn't reject it. <laughs> As women's work. Shame on you, <laughs> Shame MIT. On
0: you. And they were um, like they were the cutting edge. MIT was it was early were. on was the cutting edge for all this stuff.
1: They were they had all these really important food scientists and then they just shut that department down. Anyway, um the, they did the work on water activity, which then um they sort of uh began to partner with some private companies and developed, I think it was with Pillsbury, the very first intermediate moisture food energy bar, which is a fruit bar that went up. Um, and on the
0: Apollo, it's it's an amazing journey through so many different technologies, and you know I want to talk about freeze drying because I believe that NASA, before having the apricot bar, you know the famous astronaut ice cream, I believe that that's a freeze drying technique. It is, uh, it is. <laughs> which is which is weird to think, just how I mean it's it is like eating chalk or a, a cubed Necco wafer, which I don't I'm not opposed to I love those things, but it's not. Ice cream.
1: <laughs> no, well, you know, it's it. Actually, I dropped that little piece out of out of the story of the energy bar, but it's, it's It is very closely related, which is after. So, World War Two was sort of the origin of many uh-huh. uh, food science innovations and our and really our food science uh, research system to this day. Um, one of the things that ways that uh, technologies became. Um, sort of food related was that after World War II, there was all these new, they developed new techniques, for example, to freeze, uh, freeze dehydration which was originally used for blood products, for plasma oh, right. yeah. as a way to re- remove all the, all of the water so it could then be shipped and used and, on the battlefield. And so, and after the war ended, um, so they, you know, did this whole little industry had sprung up to freeze dry um, plasma and they didn't have a function anymore. And so they tried applying it to food. <laughs> of um, at that point, the, the, <laughs> Uh, the Quartermaster Corps looked and said, okay, um, let's see, maybe we can create a whole system that is free because it would be a perfect battlefield food, right? Mm-hmm. No, you know, hardly any water in it. Right. And you can easy to carry and distract blah, 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 blah. Um, and, but the problem was that freeze dehydration it, it because there's no moisture in the food, it literally takes it out of your mouth. So um, nonetheless they persevered and in the, by the late 1950s they had this whole system um that they wanted to uh to field which was going to be a system of bars mm-hmm. just bars you would so you would just like get a bar that would be a breakfast bar and th- that wasn't only a granola bar it would be like um bacon and eggs bar or whatever mm-hmm. um and uh and then and they, they also had my favorite part which is the laminated booklets of com- of condiments <laughs> right. that you could add to the bars right, like ketchup yeah. and <laughs> honey and soy sauce yeah. um, and they but that that actually never really got to the point where it was fielded but at that point the space program began and nasa was looking for for a very very safe light food to send into space with astronauts and freeze dried food came to the rescue.
0: I love that. You mentioned it in, you don't mention the the packets of condiments in your book, but I saw it in a, in a lecture that you gave. And I thought that was just so great. These little thin layers, almost like a, a moist towelette of ketchup, you know, like that, uh, that's that's yeah. pre ketchup packet, you know,
1: I would, I would like one of those packets. I mean, you could just put that in your, well, me and my purse, sure. right. And, you know, take it out if you went out and need a little extra spice.
0: It might make that pork patty you had a little palatable maybe if they had included some of that. Probably. So there's a couple things I want to mention. Uh, Just really quickly you talked about how um, people were motivated by alcohol. Uh, You know I did a whole episode about the president. There's a a guy who does a presidential library and one of the artifacts that he has is an Andrew Jackson whiskey flask that people who were supporters would hand out to people in line. Talk about Bribing people before <laughs> before a vote. Yeah. We think we got problems now. That uh, so they would hand out these little flasks of whiskey. So you know, alcohol was the, was the motivator for sure, Anastasia. Uh, and it, you mentioned. Um, uh, the all these you know the, the the I want to put a button on the story as we talked about convergent evolution and I'm going to put myself in the same sentence as the people who created the Power Bar in 1983 and this is a great story because essentially uh, it's a, a marathon runner Jennifer and Bill Vaughn uh, created the Power Bar uh, with with Brian Maxwell who I'm sorry Brian and Jennifer were the husband and wife team uh, mm-hmm. Bill was the um, I think the money man. Uh, or the scientist i'm getting this i'm really botching the the story i'm totally botching the story no
1: that's good but they
0: worked together and created the power bar but they didn't have any of the technology that the army had so in a way they created something you know in a in parallel with what the army was doing and i thought that that was really interesting that that's where their mind went that maybe it's a natural evolution i don't know
1: when you say they didn't have any of the technology what do you mean
0: uh, well, I mean that they didn't have access to what the army was doing. I mean, that they didn't have the technology, I should say, but they didn't—they didn't know what the army was working on, I guess. Uh, or am I wrong in that? I because I thought that they kind of created this completely oh, yeah. independently. Is that—is that, is that I wrong?
1: Think he, well, well, um, the I think that the. They, that it was pretty much what, so I sh- we haven't really talked about this, but what happens is usually, um, so the- Well, uh, let me pause you for one second.
0: Because um, the reason why I'm saying that is because in my notes here, I'm saying that there were, he, that Brian claims no connection to the army. Uh, and all, that they, right. all the research they used was based on a guy named Ted Labuza's work. And none of the military papers were available. So what I guess what I mean is they were able to create this power bar without the technology and inside know-how from the army. So just to clarify, that may be and wrong, the, but... That, that, but
1: I I think something got a little bit garbled there because... That sounds like the, me. The, my, I think my point there, no. <laughs> <laughs> my point there was that um, this is kind of how this works and this is why we don't understand that the military is the origin for these technologies. Okay. So the the Natick Center um, funded the research on um, water activity during the 1960s and Ted LaBusa worked on that.
0: Okay. Oh I see. So I see.
1: then he he was at MIT. So then what happens is uh, meanwhile they're working on the actual the application, they come up with some energy bars, they're working with some companies and they send those into space and there was a whole first generation of energy bars during the 1970s. It wasn't didn't really catch on that much. Okay. Um so and a lot of them were just those big old cereal companies and you know, like General Mills mm. and um again Pillsbury and, and so forth and Post so then, in the 1970s, uh, in in the early 80s, um, there were some of these new applications, and and there were two um, ones. First, were for dieters mm-hmm. because again, it was like a real you know really controlling your food just by eating these little bars, and then the other was for athletes.
0: Okay, and I so see.
1: that's where, while I bon, see, I I, see. I don't, there was no direct connection, my point was by then. All this knowledge is kind of out there. Right. And he, of course, you, you use that in your corporate, and you don't realize that that actually had this military origin.
0: I see. Okay, so that makes, a. Uh, so basically it's kind of like when people have a creative idea when they've heard other people talk and they claim that what they've did is not based on someone else's previous work but kind of what was going on is in the zeitgeist uh you know that's for again for you holly uh the zeitgeist is one of my listeners who loves when i say zeitgeist but it's out there and people are kind of absorbing all of this information and so that's okay so that's kind of what the basis of that was and that's
1: and that is by design. Here. Okay, and so that's the other important thing, which is um, the idea here is the government. The government doesn't want to have um, authorship; it's just trying to get this information out there. And the reason is um, also connected to World War II, which is um, originally so. During World War II, there was this huge ramp up in terms of food science for the military. And they worked with many, many different partners, both um, in universities and in industry. Mm-hmm. After World War II, um, there was a decision both because we did not want to uh, um, you know, ever have to go through that experience of ramping up again. And also, as a deterrent to kind of keep this system in place. So, this whole release, this this, uh, food science network with the military, the university, and industry continued, and they continued to disseminate um, research and new products through that. That was Only sort of accelerated in the 1980s because there was this. At that time, the U.S. was kind of perceived to be falling behind Japan, and we were trying to like accelerate um, the transition of technology that might have had government funding. And so there was a bunch of different uh, policies that were put in place so that you so that federal laboratories are mandated to get their findings and their research results into the hands of the private sector.
0: Which is kind of, you know, it's interesting because there's a whole book you could write on which companies get to use that advanced technology, like who, who has access to it? I'm sure if I start a food company, I'm not getting access to the cutting edge technology, but, but Kraft, Hillsbury, and, you know.
1: Absolutely. You are so right. The, 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 the traditional big boys are the ones who have that access, and um, a great example would be something called high-pressure processing, which was um, a cold uh, uh, pres- preservation technique that was developed during the 1990s with military uh, funding, and what it did was to fund um, a consortium. That consortium consisted of some universities with food science departments, the military, and companies like Pillsbury, um, uh, Coca-Cola, Hormel—all of these huge companies. And no, you're right. So the little guys are not going to get access to this. And then what Hormel does is they turn around and they take that technology and they used it to create a new product, which was a "quote unquote" preservative-free. Um, sort of uh, pastrami and cold cuts.
0: Yeah, and, and, and I love that always big business loves to talk about the free market and that's what this does all this, but it sounds like people have an inside track and people also want to preserve that as well, which is the hypocrisy of that, Anastasia, drives me nuts. Uh, mm-hmm. but, but in closing, here mm-hmm. I want to mention one other thing. You talked about freeze drying and I have to mention this fun fact. Uh, you know, flash freezing is similar to freeze drying, Sort of. It's in the same neighborhood. It's not really the same, but mm-hmm. I love that flat. The father of frozen food, of flash frozen food, is Clarence Birdseye of Birdseye frozen food. I did not think that was real. <laughs> I did not think his last name was really Birdseye, um, but 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 it is true. I, I thought that was interesting. Uh, but you know th- this connection. I want to I want to I want to conclude here by saying. You make an interesting point about this connection between, you know, the private sector and the military. And it, you know, my my political thoughts about that aside, what this did do is it it did disseminate all of that inf- that that technology to the average person. And as you mentioned, fifty percent, or we talked about early on, fifty percent of a growth
1: up to ninety six up to ninety
0: six. Uh, but by my ext- my my extreme <laughs> calculations, uh, could be could be using this technology. But you also point out. That this techn- this food, this technology that's in this food was supposed to be eaten in extreme situations for short periods of time. This was not a long-term solution, and yet the technology in the consumer market—this is people eat this every day, long-term. You know, uh, and and and. My my takeaway from this was kind of shocking at what happened to you Anastasia. I think you got tainted, you got you got corrupted here because we start you started out, you know, making all this fresh food, but in the end the improbable happened. You stopped making food from scratch, you started using ready-made processed foods because it was easier and you even talk about how you don't mind eating out of bags and cans. You know, but then you also talk about at the end of the book, you're saying that the effects of this food are unknown on the person. And you close the book by saying you were cooking something in a 1920s Dutch oven. Where are you on this? You need to pick a side, Anastasia. Are you?
1: I am. I am just all, you're over, all the over, over the I map here. I'm in this. Still, I'm, I'm, the still, I'm still in the same place. Um, <laughs> right. I don't I don't get upset. I put my my, uh, you know, fr- uh, frozen dinners. Um, uh-huh. My kids love their snack food. Sure. I eat some snack food. I'll have a Coke every now and then, you know, but I'm, I, I really, it's a balance issue. And I, you know, I'm, I'm you know, you shouldn't be guzzling sugary beverages, whether those are sodas or fruit juices, yeah. and yeah, eat a lot of vegetables. I think that, you know, that that rule, I would, you know, stand by, but I think there's a lot more flexibility in what we can consume. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that I've been doing, I've, I, you know, I just published a new book, which is um, eat like a pig run like a horse. Which kind of tackles that issue, and um, one of the things that I am trying to make the point about: there's no real special diet that is ideal for a human. Mm-hmm. Um, we are really, or we are like pigs, omnivores, and we can really thrive on a variety of special diets, and we can eat a lot of pretty junky food and 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 do okay. Um, so I think. Um, In that book, I'm really looking more at the issue of um, the incredible uh, increase in sedentarism Mm -hmm. that we've Mm -hmm. had since really like the turn of the last century. But we have just, you know, starting, of course, with automobiles and changes in occupations. But then um, screens, 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 starting with TV. And now we're just like, we're just screens. I don't even know. You know, (laughs) we all spend Eleven hours a day, I think it is. Um, the average person spends with a screen.
0: Ninety-six percent of our time, I think, is spent in front of a screen. 96%, at least,
1: <laughs> at 50%, at 50, okay? Ninety-six, at least, it's at least fifty. At least fifty, up to ninety-six,
0: right? Uh, and I mean, I'm looking at two right now. But that's a, it's a, it's that's a great point because you know the book on, on military food is called Combat Ready Kitchen. Your other book is called Eat Like a Pig, Run Like a Horse. And you, uh, I say that right. Eat like a pig, run like a horse. Not eat yeah, like a horse, okay, run like a pig. Right. right? That'd be weird. Um, but eat like a pig, run like a horse. Uh, but you know, it's it's the, the. I was reading. I was reading the foreword of that, and it's interesting because you talk about you are looking at human metabolism through the animal lens. And what what's interesting about that distinction is another thing that I always talk about is that human beings love to separate themselves from the animal kingdom, uh, and it's, so it's almost like you know your 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 approach is almost like, well, we have to reconsider ourselves as part of the animal kingdom, because we are, <laughs> we are animals, and, you know, and Absolutely. that's important. And it goes back to what I was saying about natural food. Um, but, you know, it's it, it's a great, both of these are great books. And, you know, hopefully we can have you on for, for the second books. I want to get into that because, you know, I'm sitting too much, but I try to be active and I want to know, you know, I, I love looking at it through that lens, but how can people find either one of these books? How can people find you uh, and get in touch with you and, and you know, and start a conversation.
1: The usual ways, um, you know, online booksellers and are easy ways to get the books. And um, you can contact me uh, on my website. I have my email. I love to get email. You can message me on LinkedIn. I used to have Facebook, but Facebook designated me a gray account for some oh, reason wow. and and deactivated me. So.
0: <laughs> and what is what is that website? Just so I can so people can hear it.
1: It's AnastasiaMarxdeSalcedo.com. Um, Pretty obvious, my uh-huh. name. Excellent pronunciation, and, by the way. Uh, yeah, almost perfect. Yeah. Per- and um, yeah, so and just I also I just wanted to add in there on the on the uh, animal thing is that really the interesting thing I found is most animals are moving, you know, constantly throughout the mm-hmm. day, and we used to move constantly throughout the day, and it's just when you look, it's shocking how much they move. Like mice will will. If they can um, run six, four to six miles a day, bats um, will fly the equivalent of four ultra marathons a night looking for food. And, you know, so when you see how how we've dropped off then you start to understand that perhaps some of our our health issues are related to that because there's some incredible molecular benefits of exercise um, that we are only now just discovering.
0: I I completely agree with you. And I think that that's really important information to get out there. So uh, and and speaking of pigs, horses and bats, do you have time? We didn't talk about restructured meat or powdered cheese. Can can (gasps) we do a a bonus episode uh, on that? Do you have 10 minutes to talk about that? Sure, sure, uh, sure. Go wonderful. Ahead. So we're going to get into that. You can find it on the podcast feed. Uh, but of course, you can find the show we are on. You can watch. You can watch the visual. You can watch. Uh, Anastasia, almost eat a pork patty. If you go to the YouTube page, it's youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn to see the YouTube, the video version of this. You can also find it on the website, fascinatingnouns.com, And of course we're on Twitter, fascinating noun and on Facebook, fascinating nouns. Uh, but this has just been a wonderful conversation. Anastasia, this this is just uh, blew my mind with with how the military is so tied into our food. Uh, it's terrifying, um, but uh, it's not as terrifying as restructured meat, which we're going to get into. Uh, but I want to thank you so much for being on the show and telling me about all this this crazy food.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Daniel.
0: Thank you. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel G. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. And I'm guessing after listening to this, you never want to miss another episode. You're going to want to subscribe. We are on all of your favorite podcasting platforms, and we even have links right there on our show website, which is fascinatingnouns.com. You can find all the links right there. And let's say you don't have a favorite podcasting platform, that's no problem. You can listen to every episode right there on the website, which is, once again, fascinatingnouns.com. And while you're there, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter. It's a great way to learn more about the episodes that you're listening to, find out about upcoming episodes, and to just keep in touch with the community. It's right there on the website. Speaking of community, there's no better way to stay in touch than on social media. And you can find links to our show's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube pages right there on the front page of FascinatingNouns.com. And speaking of YouTube, there's a video version of this episode there right now, uh, as well as other past episodes and all future episodes. It's going to be right there, youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. It's a great way to see all the guests and, uh, you know, check it out live and in person. Feel like you're there in studio. Great way to do it, youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. And finally, if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to danieljglenn.com and check out all of my projects and see what's going on. Once again, thank you for listening. End of transmission.